1: Hi, fellow shut-ins, and thank you for downloading the 49th Scoring at the Movies episode, the Every Other Thursday podcast that reviews sports films from way back when. Danger. If you don't dig some spoilers, then this is not the podcast for you. I'm the impotent rascal who shoots off his gun whenever Chris comes over because he does need the job that bad, Ryan Ellis. And here's the 12-time batting champion who loves to be hated, the Ontario Peach, Lord Christy Gregorio. <laughs> These titles are getting ever more elaborate as you go along. <laughs> <laughs> we talking for two minutes one of these times, and just be waiting patiently to come in and say, "Oh yeah, that's me." Hi.
0: I like that you finally acknowledge the impotent part of it too. Finally saying what we've all been thinking for these past forty-eight and a bit episodes now. So, I'm assuming it was just the last two years that you've been punching yourself ineffectually in the groin while raging at the world, right? It hasn't been. Oh, for it's beautiful woman of the world, is laying there. What's wrong with you? Work. <laughs>
1: Not the most beautiful woman in the world, but it is Ron Shelton's wife playing that character. Lolita Davidovich plays that character, so no wonder he said in the screenplay, she's the most beautiful woman in the world.
0: Look what I did for you, honey. That's pretty slick. And of course,
1: it's interesting that Cobb is impotent while he is constantly shooting off a gun.
0: You think there's a little symbology at play?
1: Symbology, indeed, I think. Definitely symbology. Also, did they bring a lot of ammo on this road trip, or did they maybe just go to a nearby store? It is America. Because he shoots off that gun, and so at one point does Stump
0: a lot. I just kind of pictured the trunk of that car being full of whiskey and ammo and a variety of handguns, because we see a couple different ones pulled out at various points in this movie.
1: And also probably a lot of clothes, because Cobb's a pretty good dresser.
0: He's a man that likes a good smoking jacket. I picked up on that real quick, Mm -hmm. and I was a little bit jealous of that, because you can see me in my fuzzy red robe, but I don't have one of these slick Hugh Hefner-esque smoking jackets that he was rocking the whole time.
1: Well, speaking of vices, I'm about to get a drink of my... What am I drinking here? I guess it's Crown Royal this time and Diet Pepsi. What are you drinking over in your house? And of course, we are recording this separately like everyone else is now. For a while to come, I'm sure, with the old COVID thing. Chris is at home, I'm at home. What are you drinking there?
0: The nice thing about being at home, especially on a weekend when I don't have any other responsibilities, is that we can drink irresponsibly while recording this silly podcast. This is one I think I've had before, actually. It's a Squeeze Play sour beer from a local place here. Talk about appropriate. Yeah, I tried to go for that. It's a little bit of a different flavor. They do like seasonal releases of these things. So this is the pomegranate version of that, the manliest of beers that I could possibly go for. But there you are. I think I use this either for the natural or Angels in the Outfield. I can't remember which one. Interesting you mentioned
1: Angels in the Outfield because this is the same year Cobb was as Angels in the Outfield. That was the first movie we ever covered. No, wait, Mighty Ducks was. It was was one of the first movies we ever covered. I think it was third or something. It was the
0: first baseball movie we ever did, that's for sure. I think there was possibly more actual baseball in Angels in the Outfield, as stupid as that movie was, than there was in Cobb somehow. There was a lot more, I think. This is a movie that... I remember liking, because I saw it right when I was really into Tommy Lee Jones. And Tommy Lee Jones had a string of really good movies through the 90s. Even in this, his performance is fine. I have no issues with him. I find it interesting that they cast him specifically for the role, and they didn't just go with an older actor to play Ty Cobb, since the whole movie focuses on, like, 74-year-old Ty Cobb. So why do you need a guy who's, at this point, I guess he would have been about late 40s, early 50s, Tommy Lee Jones?
1: We'll keep talking, I'll look it up for you.
0: I went into this thinking, okay, this will be great. Because I remember there being some action from the heyday of his career, the 1910s into the early 20s. I think it would be fun to see some old-timey baseball. And we kind of saw that a little bit in the natural. And it's fun to see something that's a little bit old school, right?
1: Even more old-timey
0: baseball. Yeah, exactly. And we barely see any of it. What do you think the total screen time is? They show, I think, the same little clip shots of Tommy Lee Jones as Ty Cobb about three or four times throughout the movie in montage sequences. Running over the first
1: baseman, that sequence, and fighting with a third baseman when he spikes him. And
0: spiking the catcher and drop-kicking the catcher.
1: Yeah, this is one of those movies when they do have sports action, really good, especially for a guy who was, and I was looking it up, Tom Lee Jones was born in 1946, so he was about 47-ish when they yeah. shot this.
0: Why do you think they cast a 47-year-old man to play a guy in his 70s when 99% of the performance is the 70-ish-year-old guy? At first, I thought it was because they wanted a guy that could pass, kind of like Robert Redford, a guy who's in his 40s but might reasonably pass as still an aging baseball player. And Tommy Lee Jones, one thing you do notice is every time he pulls up his robe to get one of those insulin shots or something, the dude has, like, freaking washboard abs. The guy was ripped <laughs> as hell in this movie. But they picked a guy that was 30 years the junior of the role he was playing, which was a little bit weird. Was it just because he has, like, a good Georgia-esque southern accent, do you think?
1: That could be. I think there's a simpler reason. And he wasn't Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, Harrison Ford, Schwarzenegger. I could go on with star power, but he had star power. He was coming off of Under Siege before that JFK, which got him a nomination and the Oscar win for The Fugitive, which he would have actually not won before he got this role, because during the Oscar ceremony for The Fugitive, he was bald. And one of the things he said during that acceptance speech was, I'm not a bald man or something like that. And he shaved his head for this movie. That's why he had the bald head. So they were making this movie when he won the Oscar for that one. But the point is, he was in a run of pretty damn good movies and a yeah. lot of acclaim. It was probably also hard to find a star to want to do this despicable, awful, piece of shit character.
0: I guess that could also be true. You can look at it one of two ways. This guy is a piece of work and I don't want anything to do with playing him. Or you just throw yourself into it and say, it's going to be a lot of fun playing this whacked out dirtbag type old man character As Tommy Lee Jones plays him, he plays him almost like a cranky old man, cranky old bigoted man, certainly, who's just decided, I'm old, and I don't give a shit. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I got $100 million in the bank, so screw all y'all. What do I care? But he was always an asshole. He was always an asshole, but one of the things that I think we've learned probably more so now than ever before is that people are complex right they're multifaceted and mm-hmm. ty cobb always had a reputation of being a dick there were a lot of teammates and people that he played against that hated his guts that's for sure
1: his own team hated his guts too
0: the guy and i think he's actually referenced at one point in this movie when cobb says oh you wouldn't believe the parties we used to have wahoo sam or something that was sam crawford who was his teammate for like 13 years and apparently they hated each other's guts the whole time crawford followed cobb in the order the whole time they were center fielder left fielder so they played closely for 13 years and couldn't stand one another. He was a complicated guy, but he wasn't just a totally evil man that he's kind of portrayed as being in this movie. I think what's come to light since is that the stump guy played up aspects of Trump and fictionalized as Not Trump. Good God.
1: I was hoping he wouldn't catch that and I could correct you. You said <laughs> Trump.
0: Come on. If you're going to pick a modern personality that actually most closely matches the Ty Cobb in this movie, it might be Trump. Wait a minute,
1: there's no problem there, no problem, (laughs) believe me, believe me.
0: Oh my god. Anyway. No impotence. Yeah, so the guy that wrote the biography that this movie was based on, the stump guy was actually the author of the biography.
1: Real guy, yeah. Real guy. Wrote an actual book about Ty Cobb, was a sports writer, all that's true.
0: All that's true. Well, he released two, right? Because the first one he released was the whitewashed version that you hear referenced at the end of this movie, even though Ty Cobb had died. There was the glowing biography, and then this Stump guy released one later that basically said, I was coerced and blah, 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 and here's the real story, and it was super salacious and really painted him in a bad light. I think in the 25 to 30 years since Stump's death, we've come to know that Ty Cobb was a bit of a tool, certainly, but he wasn't an evil man, and there's all kinds of stories about his generosity and about how he was surprisingly progressive in a lot of ways, we see in the movie that Ty Cobb was really into stocks and he was into investing and he's notably an early and large shareholder in Coca-Cola, right? Towards the end, of course, we get that scene where it's the chairman of the board of Coke wants to see you. Tell him to go have a Pepsi and I don't have time for him right now, right?
1: And oh, he's from Georgia and that's where- Atlanta, Coke, yeah. And maybe not now, but Coke's headquarters was in Atlanta a long time it in still the is. middle part of the century. Yeah. Okay, there you go.
0: But yeah, so he was a rich guy when he died, his estate was worth the equivalent of like $100 million today- he donated about a quarter of his fortune to starting a scholarship fund in Georgia for folks who can't afford to go to post-secondary school.
1: The movie says that, though, doesn't it? It talks about how I think so. he donated money. His kids were estranged from him. The movie says that. That's one thing we should make clear, then, after what you just said. We've been agreeing that Cobb, in the movie, is portrayed as being awful. Yeah. But then Stump's book, the one about how he was awful, has been debunked. So supposedly this movie is not true. But whether the movie's true or not, and apparently it isn't. It does remind me of that line in the movie The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance When the legend becomes fact Print the legend Yeah Because that whole movie's about Jimmy Stewart didn't really kill Liberty Valance The John Wayne character did But it meant more It was more important that Jimmy Stewart supposedly did it And John Wayne didn't object So anyway, good movie, you should see it Bev and I covered that a few years ago I think that's what's going on here And that's pretty much what Stump is telling the Well, he's not telling anybody But then the voiceover A lot of voiceover in this movie mm-hmm. He says something to that effect The world needs Ty Cobb to be a hero and a legend so that's why that first book was the bullshit version. But then this movie apparently is the bullshit version. So we might trip over ourselves in the rest of this podcast talking about how hey, it was an awful piece of shit. But then maybe the movie is what's wrong.
0: There's been some movies we've done that are loosely based on real events. And you can say, well, this is fictionalized for the screen, but it does an OK job of actually portraying stuff. Cool
1: Runnings, for example, is yeah. close enough.
0: This movie is a piece of drama, and I think so divorced from the reality of the man at this point that you kind of have to look at it as a separate entity. And it's a little bit sad because you and I are both, I think, fans of baseball lore. We both enjoy the nitty gritty of some of these stats. And there's few players in history that are more interesting, if you're into that kind of thing, than Ty Cobb. And as
1: far as being a pure baseball player, who is the greatest when they're arguing it? They're arguing it in the early 60s. But who was the purely greatest baseball player at that point? I wouldn't argue against him, even more so than probably Ruth, as great as Ruth was. It's hard to do that now because you've got Mays in the equation. He was still fairly young at the time of this movie's setting in the early 60s. Yeah. But I always said that Ruth was the greatest player who ever played the game, but Cobb was the best player who ever played the game. I can see that. Ruth's just more famous. Ruth's Gretzky, Michael Jordan, Muhammad Ali, and some of those guys might also be the best player in their sports history, although probably not, but they're the greatest.
0: Yeah, and I'd like that scene in the car in the latter stages of this movie when Cobb and Stumpy are having that conversation and Stumpy's like, Come on, man, you can't deny that Babe Ruth is a great baseball player. And Cobb's just like, Well anyone can hit a home run, but it takes My sister can hit the ball two hundred and ninety six feet. Is that true? Did they build Yankee Stadium with a short right-field porch just for... Yeah. That's crazy. It reminds me of modern-day Yankees players. They have so many left-handed batters in those short right-field porch. And I was reading about that, and I thought, okay, Ty Cobb, I think his last season was like 1924 or 1925, and he played about 22 or 23 seasons. So he started right around the turn of the 20th century.
1: 1928, by the way. 1928. his last season.
0: Okay, so he started in the early 1900s. And that is during the dead ball era of baseball, right? I've always heard that term, and I had to look up, okay, what does this mean? Because Ty Cobb, as great a hitter as he was, had the longest streak in history, averaging 400 over five consecutive seasons or something, 13 straight years batting over 320. Like, all these stats, they're just mind-boggling. But you look at his home run numbers, and he just didn't hit home runs.
1: Now he's got nine eight eight seven four two three those kinds of numbers
0: high slugging percentage high OPS but not a lot of home runs so I had to look it up okay well what is the dead ball era and if you look at some of the baseball stadiums that existed from about 1900 until about the end of World War II 1918 and then you started getting the second wave of stadiums at that point you get Fenway and you get Yankee Stadium getting built and Wrigley Field and stuff like that but before that Some of these stadiums in Boston and in Chicago, and maybe Philadelphia was the other one, center field was 550 to 600 feet deep. (laughs) 360 feet down the foul poles on both fields, but the straightaway center is 600 feet. What in the hell? No wonder nobody's hitting home runs. And we kind of saw this in the eight men out movie. Owners were notoriously tight-fisted. So if somebody hit a foul ball, the fans were expected to throw it back and they kept using the ball, the same ball all game long.
1: So then that gets scuffed up and the pitcher can and take advantage soft. of that.
0: It will get softer, so you can't hit it as hard. And then, of course, things like spitballs were legal. And they had just introduced the foul ball as a strike rule, apparently, just before the dead ball era. Because until then, foul balls were not strikes. So all these factors came in, in addition to the fact that people just didn't view home runs as being all that important. That's why Ty Cobb, as great a hitter as he was, was hitting like six, seven, eight, nine home runs a year. And why I guess it was so revolutionary that Babe Ruth comes in and hits 29 home runs one year. And everyone's like, oh my God, what the hell's going on here? Who is the greatest? How do you determine that? And Cobb in this movie makes the argument that you have to be a smarter guy. You got to hit with your head. You got to run with your head. You got to field smart. Anybody can hit home runs. But Babe Ruth was also a great pitcher. And he hit for a great average. And he had a lot of other And he
1: drew walks. yeah.
0: And he ran pretty good for a fat guy.
1: Say one nice thing about Ruth. He ran pretty good for a fat man. Yeah, <laughs> I love that moment. That's one of the best lines in the whole movie. Ruth has the highest war in history. And of course, that's wins above replacement, which is the more modern way of evaluating players. Mm-hmm. Mike Trout dominates that every year nowadays, every single year it seems. If he's not number one, he's in the top two or three, and he's only not number one because he gets hurt and misses games. But Ruth is the highest of all time. Almost everybody in the top 50 of war all time is in the Hall of Fame. The ones who aren't are Clemens, Bonds, A-Rod, and Beltray just recently retired, so he can't be in there yet. Pujols is still playing. But almost everybody else, if not every single other player that's there, is a Hall of Famer because that's what they judge value on now. Cobb is up there, too. I think he might be, if not second, he's in the top five, at least.
0: For a long time, he had the most games played in history. And as a guy that right to the end was a valuable player, there's no way that he's not racking up wins above replacement, even if he's not hitting a ton of home runs. He was doing everything else. He was stealing, like, 80 bases. He doubles, triples, RBIs, hitting for average, hitting for gap power, anyway.
1: You know who he reminds me of in the modern era? Maybe not so much for defense, because I don't know if Ty Cobb was supposed to be a great defender. And, of course, this guy I'm about to say was a great defender is Ichiro. Because the way they show Cobb hitting with the hands-apart grip and all that, he's trying to steer the ball into open spots. I've tried to do that now with the hands-apart grip, but try to steer the ball in certain places when I play. Yeah. And it's not that easy to do it when you just play softball or even three-pitch, let alone when you're facing major league pitching. But Ichiro was the same kind of thing. It was artistry with those guys. Hit them where they ain't and then run. And Cobb was fast. Ichiro was fast.
0: But the biggest difference between those two guys is Cobb, I think, developed a lot of his reputation as being an ass. He wanted to play as hard as he possibly could to win in any way he could. We see some of the spiking and things like that.
1: You're at war with the other team, in his opinion.
0: You're Right. And Ichiro was notorious for being out for number one he wanted individual stats and if it meant that the team might not win the game it didn't matter he wanted those hit totals he wanted the batting average that was the rep he had especially during his heyday in seattle even though they were very similar players and had like you said a similar style of play and you mentioned that hit him where they ain't line one of my favorite lines of babe that is attributed to babe ruth anyway whether or not he actually said it is that oh i hit him where they ain't they ain't in the stands (laughs)
1: simple line very true yeah so the baseball in this movie there's not that much of it i think it's pretty damn vivid but let's just talk about that part now we usually save it for the end do you think the sport is well depicted i would say even though it's probably the least amount of sports we've ever had in our 49 episodes probably even less than what we see in point break and fast and the furious which are not really sports movies anyway but what's in it is damn good and roger clemens so well cast as an old school pitcher he was in kingpin which we covered too he's not a bad actor only two movies he was ever in though were Cobb and kingpin
0: all he had to do was slay Cobb a little bit with a few insults, right? And then pitch, which obviously he can do.
1: But he just was so believable, though, I think. Yeah. It takes more than that. If it had been Jimmy Key or David Cohn or someone like that... Wouldn't have been as believable as it was with Clemens. He looks like he came from the 1920s, in that (laughs) outfit especially.
0: He's got the build, right? Like a little bit of bulk about him and stuff like that.
1: So do you think the sport was well depicted then? In what little we see of
0: it? The visuals of it are very graphic, right? They're very well choreographed, even if they're minimal. Especially those montage shots of Cobb hitting. The only extended sequence we actually get is that one sequence where he's at bat against Roger Clemens. But other than that, it's mostly cut montages of him hitting or running or stealing a base or sliding into home. But it was vividly cut in a way to make it look like Ty Cobb was not just playing hard, but playing dirty. I don't think we see him once slide without his spikes up. They're always at groin level. I'm sure he did that from time to time, but I can't imagine that was how he slid every time.
1: He'd get thrown out of games if he did it all the time.
0: Yeah, exactly. Eventually it's going to catch up with you.
1: So we'll save our score number for later on and the can use score factor there isn't one in this movie really despite some of the sexuality but anyway let me build up some things before we get back in conversation so it was called home run in germany just one word home run home run and this movie is not at all about home runs
0: that is the opposite of what this movie is trying to talk about right
1: germany and it was released by warner brothers on december 2nd 1994 26 years ago it was a gigantic failure it wasn't (laughs) a big budget movie but it didn't make any money And the Rotten Tomatoes number, 65% of critics like the movie, only 65, barely a passing grade, 6.4 out of 10, and 59% of audiences, which is not a fresh tomato for the audiences. And it was 191st at the 1994 U.S. box office. Forrest Gump was number one. I already mentioned this. Angels in the Outfield was 26th. And Major League Two, which I guess we should cover at some point, because why not? We covered the first one last year, was 45th. And I'll do my nutshell while I'm still talking right now. The great Ty Cobb is taking PEDs okay, well, LEDs, life-enhancing drugs, not performance-enhancing drugs, but still, he's taking PEDs.
0: Ryan, if there's anything we learn from that scene of him in the bedroom punching himself in the groin, we learn that those drugs he's taking do not enhance performance. Quite the opposite, probably. (laughs) If if you're taking a bunch of lithium, I don't think that's good for your performance. That's why why. they're LEDs. They're life-enhancing drugs. This is definitely the kind of movie that I could see appealing to critics more than audiences because it's a very slow burn. Follow these two men around and see how their relationship develops more so than it is to do with the baseball aspect of Ty Cobb's life.
1: Even the other actors, there's very little other actors in this movie. Lolita Davidovich is in it for a very brief period of time. The guy from Tin Cup, he's one of the lackeys, Lou Myers. He's the one who plays Willie. He's probably got the third most screen time. It's not like he's in the movie very much either. It's almost entirely Tommy Lee Jones and I think not the greatest performance, Robert Wool. Wool, Wool. I think it's Wool. Yeah, Wool. Well. He was in Bull Durham. Shelton wrote and directed that. And he was also in Batman. And I don't know. I don't think after this, probably my fourth time seeing this movie, that Wool was very good. I don't think it's the right choice to play what is effectively the leading man. He's got as much yeah. as, if not more than, screen time, Tommy Lee Jones. So I would say a bit of a mild thumbs down for his performance. I think Jones is one of the best things he's ever done. But Wool, eh.
0: Jones is great. He's charismatic in it. Wool, I've never been a huge fan of in anything he's done, and I agree with you. I'm just kind of like a mild the Was Willie the guy that we see running out of Ty Cobb's house at early stages? The black of the movie? guy, yeah, he's a black guy. Mm-hmm. That cracked me up. The ranting he's doing—it reminded me of like a Dave Chappelle skit. <laughs> I don't need this shit. I don't need this job. You, motherfucker, you ain't nothing. Freedom, freedom, freedom. <laughs> it was fantastic. He's also
1: wandering outside in a blizzard all night long before they pick him up. I guess it's supposed to be the next day when it's, we're going to Reno. I'm horny. Is what Cobb says to Stump. So that's the next morning, I think. And that means Willie was outside with no shelter in a blizzard and just fine walking on the street. He's a tough guy. I think we're supposed to not notice that he's outside all night long in a blizzard.
0: As weird as that whole sequence of scenes was that we're going to Reno, I'm horny through the end of the Reno stuff. Which is probably about 20 minutes of the movie when it's all said and done. At least. When you think about why this occurs, it's such a bizarre thing. If you're trying to get yourself into Ty Cobb's head, the character of Ty Cobb in this movie, I mean... He's alone in his palatial estate. Presumably, he still has like a manservant, butler type character that lives there with him. Basically, he's alone with his stump guy, right? And he just for some reason feels the need to try to impress the writer by saying, "I'm horny, let's go drive through a snowstorm to Reno." Despite the fact we later learn he's impotent and has been for years, so he must have known that nothing was going to happen.
1: All he's he... an optimist, Chris. Maybe this time it's going to work.
0: Yeah, there's one thing we learn about Ty Cobb in this movie is that he's the eternal optimist. He's a ray of sunshine, right? And <laughs> everything's going to come up <laughs> like sunshine and rainbows. So maybe that's it. When we get to the end of that sequence and he pays off the cigar girl to tell everybody that he was the best she'd ever had, even though he can't get it up, he orchestrated this whole trip to try to impress the writer with his old man libido it was very bizarre
1: it also could be that, like i just said that he actually does have hope that maybe he'll get it up this time for whoever he finds because he doesn't know he's going to find lolita davidovich's character or it could have been a ploy the whole time to get her to spread the word that he's the greatest because he knows he's about to die so he is worried about his legacy this guy really cares about his legacy <laughs> and for <somebody laughs> who's such an asshole look at his baseball legacy that's all that really matters to him other than I'm a great lay legacy now, in Reno at least.
0: His legacy is that he wants to be Wilt Chamberlain before Wilt Chamberlain was Wilt Chamberlain. He doesn't care about anything else. (laughs) Just I need everyone to know that I was a great lay when I was 74. When the legend
1: becomes fact, print the legend. I guess. Even about his boning abilities.
0: Bringing truth to the t-shirt of the man, the myth, the legend kind of thing, the arrows up and down. Mm -hmm. We always talk about the portrayal of the sport. You've done that already. What this movie does that few other movies actually do, and I thought it did pretty well. Is the discussion of the sport right because there's more talking about baseball oftentimes it's with Cobb and Stump but you also get that group of baseball writers and periodically you get other characters like Willie or others chiming in as well and one of the great lines of this movie and I can't remember the name of the player but he must have been a Negro League player when that was still a thing they're talking about the fastest player ever He's so fast that he hit a line drive and it would hit him on the way to second base or something like that. That's
1: the one time that Cobb laughs. Willie's story is so good and so funny. It's such a great visual story. You can just picture that if that was even possible. And, of course, it's not. But even Cobb laughs at that. I love that moment that for a minute, all three of them think that's funny. And they're all connecting, even though they've been saying awful things to each other. All three of them. Because it's not like Stump doesn't come back at Cobb pretty much from the beginning, too. Mr. Cobb, I don't need this job that bad. And then, yes, you do, Stump. I'm going to shoot at you. But Stump goes back at him pretty fast, and obviously Willie has been for a long time when he finally just says, I've had enough, and happens to be leaving at the moment that Stump is coming. But I love that moment of the car. That whole sequence it's is great. funny where Willie only likes the black players, and Cobb only likes the Detroit Tigers players. Cobb will say Mickey Cochran's the greatest catcher of all time, which is just empirically not true, especially when you look at the numbers now, which you wouldn't have had back then. And a lot of catchers have come since then. But even at this point in the early 60s, Cochran was on the short list of great catchers, but he wasn't the greatest by probably any measure.
0: This again speaks to the questionable portrayal of Ty Cobb in this movie, let's say Ty Cobb is quoted several times, the real man. I mean, not in this movie, but he's quoted several times talking about baseball and talking about integrated baseball and coming out in favor of it, particularly by the early fifties. He might not have been of this view when he was playing in the 1910s, 1920s, but by the time Jackie Robinson had broken in, Ty Cobb was speaking in favor of that. One of his lines is, the only baseball player I would actually pay to see is Willie Mays. And there was a catcher whose name I'm blanking on now. It's going to drive me crazy. Roy Campanella? For all of what he says in this movie, he's also quoted as saying Campanella was the greatest catcher of all time. And Campanella, tragically, was paralyzed in some kind of accident. And there was a fundraiser held by the L.A. Dodgers, team that he played for. And again, Ty Cobb wrote letters to the L.A. Dodgers franchise just saying they had come out to support a great man and a great baseball player. And of course, this is a black man who's playing now in the major leagues at a time when not many were. So a really interesting juxtaposition to what we see in this movie which is exactly as you describe where he's never talking up any of the negro league players that would have played at the same time he was playing the majors satchel he's Page, he's staggeringly most...
1: racist he's extremely yeah. racist in this movie
0: that was another great line though they're talking about grace pitchers ever in satchel page and i think willie's line is satchel page could throw a pork chop by a hound dog or something like that <laughs> come on that's fantastic man yeah willie's my favorite
1: Willie, well, the actor who plays him is not in Tin Cup in any major way. He's in it visually, but he's one of the guys that hangs out at the golf shop. And then he's down when Roy is at the U.S. Open. Kind of wasted in that movie compared to this. Look how much sass he has. He seems like a pretty good actor. And he's so good. He's fun. It's true. It's almost too bad he doesn't come back in the movie. But this is a road movie, of course. And whenever these guys leave a town, they don't ever see the characters again. We never see Davidovich again. We never see Lou Myers once they leave Reno. We don't see any of the Hall of Fame. Why would you? We don't see any of the guys at the Hall of Fame, like Mickey Cochran and Jimmy Fox and all those great baseball players. That's funny too, because Cobb is Cochran's benefactor and seems like they're friends, but then Cobb's the one who's locked out of the party. Which reminds mm-hmm. me of the Field of Dreams thing, with Ray Liotta playing Shoeless Joe. All the great players that are there in that big last night that we see portrayed in Field of Dreams. Ty Cobb wanted to play here, but none of us could stand the son of a bitch when he's alive, so we told him to stick it.
0: <laughs> For all of the flaws in this movie, one of the things I think it does pretty well, aside from the baseball talk stuff which I really did enjoy and even the opening and closing scenes with the scummy sports writers hanging out in the bar just posing questions to each other some sports related who's the greatest never king?
1: agreeing on who the greatest is until Cobb comes up
0: exactly I thought that was fantastic and every time I see a movie like this it makes me wish I had been a sports writer in this era because if all that involved was sitting around getting drunk and occasionally printing out some sort of half-assed Column about the last baseball game and otherwise just arguing with each other
1: and putting off your book writing.
0: Oh my God. I'm too busy. Procrastination is my forte, Ryan. I was born for that. That aspect of it aside, one of the things I did enjoy about this movie is the way they plant seeds of doubt in your mind, right? So... There's times in this movie where it feels like the stump character is over and over just trying to bludgeon you over the head with the fact that he's being made to whitewash Ty Cobb's story, but he's determined to tell the truth. You want us to believe that Ty Cobb is a scumbag and the world just doesn't know. But Ty Cobb talks early on about those same baseball players that you referenced that we later see him back together with at the Hall of Fame ceremony. And you're right, he's on the outs. But early in the movie, he's talking about Mickey Cochran, Wahoo Sam, Honus Wagner—all these famous old timers. The Wagner
1: boys. Yeah,
0: the Wagner boys. Wayner. Wagner. Sorry. The parties we used to have, and then you see him, and he's shut out of the party later, right? And it makes you wonder. Okay, so these stories he told early on—did they really happen, or are these his imaginings of a man that always wanted to be part of it but was never included?
1: That's an interesting element. You could argue that it wasn't real, and he's just telling Stump a lie, and maybe even telling himself a lie. Maybe. You could also argue that he really did party with those guys back in the day, and they put up with it because he was a superstar player, and maybe he was just better to get along with back then. And now, at 74 years old, they've probably seen him at other times, in other Hall of Fame ceremonies and other things here and there. He's become so irascible and unbearable, what's it been, 40 years or 30 years since they last saw him playing, now I can't take his fucking stupid ass. But they could before. So there's three angles on that. I think all three of them could be applicable.
0: Exactly. And I think that's part of the reason they have that weird scene early on when Stump first arrives at the weird mountain chateau of Ty Cobb. Lake Tahoe. Of course, Cobb is shooting everything in sight. And then he shoots the deer and says, oh, I shot out his throat. It's great. And bullshit. You didn't get it. But the next day, Stump finds the deer. Yeah. And is shot out across the throat. Ron Shelton, do you want us to believe that Ty Cobb is just speaking truth all the time and people don't want to hear it?
1: I think he's planting the doubt.
0: Yeah, he's planting the doubt. That's exactly it. We can't
1: really trust the movie, can we? We can't really trust what the movie's telling us.
0: No, I don't think you can.
1: Maybe that's a good thing in this movie then.
0: Maybe it is. Maybe it's because so much of what we know even now about Ty Cobb. How do you know truth from fiction about a man that was in his heyday almost 100 years ago now? You have some maybe eyewitness reports or sports clippings or whatever, but... It's almost what we believe becomes reality at a certain point, right? Bernie
1: Sanders was there. He could tell us. Yeah,
0: that's right. Poor Bernie. He's doing his best, man.
1: The 1%. Ty Cobb would definitely have been in the 1%. He should be paying more taxes. He should be fixing things in Detroit. Then and now.
0: Even the aspect of Ty Cobb's father being killed in his early 40s, which is true.
1: But can we trust his account of that story? Because first he says that it's an accident because he was trying to find his mother messing around. That part is consistent. But he's accidentally shot in the first part of the story. And then when Cobb fesses up later on, he says, my mother was with her lover. Her lover, while they're both naked standing in front of him at the window, deliberately blew his head off. It wasn't accidental on either one of those ends. He shot him in the guts pretty deliberately. And then he absolutely Deliberately shot him in the head. But which of those stories is true? Maybe neither of those stories is true.
0: That fits with what we actually know of reality because of court records and stuff is that Ty Cobb's mother was indicted for manslaughter and ultimately acquitted. And the whole story was that, yes, Ty Cobb's father said he was going away for the night or something. And then because he suspected his wife of infidelity... And came back and the story is she thought he was an intruder and shot him and it was accidental and all that kind of stuff. But you're right. That's one thing this movie does well is it does plant that seed of doubt and presents you a little bit of a gray area from time to time. Sometimes it's a little, like I said earlier, a little ham handed. Did you also find it a little strange for a movie that seemingly goes out of its way for the first hour and a half? Okay, yes, there's a crap ton of swearing and a lot of really uncomfortable racialized language at a Ty Cobb,
1: but it also feels authentic. So, yes, it's hard to listen to, but it's authentic. This is the way people talked back then, and the way this guy's portrayed, that's the way he absolutely would have talked. Whether Cobb was really that racist or not, this Cobb and this movie was that racist.
0: Agreed, 100%. But what struck me as weird is, okay, we have this scene where Ty Cobb wants to go to Reno to get laid. No nudity. Even when he's in the hotel room with Lolita Davidovich, or whatever her name is. Davidovich. Davidovich. He gets her to strip down topless, but the actress is still covering herself up.
1: No nudity clause, probably. And it's my wife.
0: There's a lot of language and some violence and stuff like that. But okay, maybe Ron Shelton's trying to preserve a PG, whatever, PG-13 rating or something like that. No way, and, not with motherfucker in the dialogue. I guess not. And then all of a sudden, at the weirdest moment, we get full frontal nudity. <laughs> Male and female, just for this 30-second scene where he blows away Ty Cobb's dad. It just struck me as the strangest directorial choice that this was the scene where these two actors had to be Buck Starkers. Why? Why couldn't they be in underwear?
1: Maybe it's like when movies don't have red on the screen except for blood. Maybe that's the idea is that I'm not going to show you naked bodies until it's this awful event that the movie portrays as being the truth now. Not only was she messing around on Cobb's father, but the lover with her... Acceptance, or whatever you want to call it, killed him on purpose. So we'll use something that's titillating and make it untitillating, and that's another thing we always talk about: is can you score this movie, despite the constant talk of sex and whatnot? And you just mentioned the nudity, and Davidovich is partially naked, but we don't see anything. Not a very scoreable movie. So no, no. I wasn't it all turned on during this movie.
0: As much as I just said earlier that Tommy Lee Jones was clearly ripped in this movie, you're right. Not scorable This is a highly uncomfortable movie for most of it, and oftentimes very offensive. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it's just to hammer home the audacious nature of this killing. But we'll put a real highlight on it by having these actors naked. Now, did you notice the ill-fated bow of Mrs. Cobb in this movie? For a guy in the early 1920s, that man was jacked, just shredded.
1: Even early 1990s for the actor to be in that kind of shape, because we've talked about this lots of times.
0: Well, Caddyshack, Caddyshack that, last
1: okay. week. The Kid, what was his name again? Ah. Oh. Denunzio, Tony Denunzio, the actor playing him. He's got beer number two going. Wow, you are at home, aren't you? I am at home. If you were here, you'd only have one. But yeah, the kid who played Tony Denunzio for 1979, 1980 was in great shape. And even in 1994, not everyone was in great shape. If that same actor in this same movie was made now, he'd probably be ripped regardless because you have to be if you're an actor, unless you're somebody who looks like me and you're a character actor. That's different.
0: It gives me a little bit of sympathy for Mrs. Cobb in this movie because, listen, if a guy that attractive and that ripped came on to me... I wouldn't be able to say no.
1: Your husband's a priest or something, too. He's boring.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: We should not gloss over, by the way, that Ty Cobb, it is definitely not subtle. Although they don't really make it very clear towards the end when he's seeing things during the Hall of Fame video that he was abusive to his wives. And it's one thing to be a yeller or somebody who ignores your wife, that kind of thing. We know that's abusive, too. But he was physically abusive and very badly so to the point where women divorced him because they couldn't take it anymore. It's not dwelled on this man beat his wives. Mm -hmm. Maybe he didn't in reality, although it would probably be in the public record somewhere. You have to gloss that over, I guess. But then again, this movie does not try to lionize him and make it seem like, we should really love Ty Cobb as a guy. When the movie's over, if you like Ty Cobb as a guy, there's something wrong with you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you cannot like Ty Cobb the man by the end of this movie. You can love him
1: as a player, but you can't love him as a person. I don't think.
0: Again, it's one of those complicated human being type of things, right? You have to abhor... Things like domestic violence, obviously. And his children, they didn't have a relationship for a long time. But by all accounts, he reconciled with his son. Oh, he did. Because in the movie,
1: that's not true. He dies alone.
0: He says at one point that he loves women, but he doesn't understand them. This strikes me as a man that doesn't understand humanity, right? All he understands is winning. I don't remember if it was actually cited. I don't think it was one of the quotes of this movie, but it was definitely something I've read of Ty Cobb in the past is, He does say that his father disapproved of him becoming a professional baseball player, that he wanted him to become something more respectable initially. I think that is in the movie. But in reality, apparently his father told him, okay, I'll let you play baseball because you just got offered a contract from the feeder system into the Detroit Tigers organization. But don't you ever come back a failure? And that colored his whole worldview. It's almost like the Talladega Nights thing. Ricky Bobby gets told, if you ain't first, you last. And then that just sends him off into this whole other spiral. And what do you mean you ain't first or last? Of course, you can be second, you can be third, you can be fourth. There's all kinds of places <laughs> that aren't last. That is something that you can totally buy out of this movie and out of Ty Cobb the Man is that he went through life feeling like he could never be a failure. And if that extended to interpersonal relationships too, to the extent that you always have to be a winner when you're alone with your wife or your children... I can believe how that would lead him to doing all kinds of heinous, horrendous stuff. I
1: would win every argument as well. Okay, that makes sense. Well, speaking of winning, he never won a World Series. He was in three World Championships with the Tigers. They lost all three to the Cubs twice and to the Pittsburgh Pirates once. All in the 1900s. Three in a row, in fact, according to this. 1907, 1908, 1909. And they lost all three times. So in that sense, he was not a winner. Never won a championship. And Ruth, of course, was part of a lot of championships.
0: Yeah, I think one of the interesting things I read when I was looking at this dead ball era stuff, I think it was the Chicago Cubs in 1908 when they won, their team's batting average was 230. The manager was quoted as saying something along the lines of, leather should beat bats, good pitching and defense should beat good hitting. But 230 and you win a World Series, it shows how little offense there actually existed at that point in time in baseball.
1: You know part of what that is though? Somebody scratches out an infield single, or they slap it past the shortstop, or they sometimes just bunt to get on base, or they walk. Somebody bunts him to second base. Maybe a ground ball gets him to third base. Wow, pitchy scores. You got one hit, and you scored a run.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's the
1: way they played back then. A lot of stolen bases. You mentioned Cobb stealing so many bases, which was still true when we were kids. Ricky Henderson, Vince Coleman, a lot of other people, for that matter, stole a lot of bases. The game was still more like that than the home run game into the 80s. It's true. But back in the Cobb era... It was as simple as that you look at some of the numbers of these old teams until you got the big offense i think it was in the 30s when it started getting big not just ruth but Gehrig, hornsby well hornsby also played in the Cobb era but anyway mantle. a lot of those kinds of guys dimaggio mantle came a little later greenberg for sure a lot of the not quite superstar superstars also had huge numbers mel ott ted williams later on of course yeah there's so many great players in that era who put up monster numbers and a lot of them are hall of famers Musual's another one. I'm one of my favorite players ever, Stan Musial. By the way, that Hall of Fame thing, they talk about how Cobb was the first ever put in the Hall of Fame, which I guess is technically true because alphabetically he was. There were five of them. There was him, Walter Johnson, Christy Mathewson, Babe Ruth, and Honus Wagner. So Cobb is first alphabetically. He did get the most votes. So if you want to go by that logic, he got more votes even than Ruth.
0: When did the Baseball Hall of Fame come into existence?
1: 1936 was the year that Cobb and Ruth and those other guys got in. And after that first group of five... For a while, there would be more like one or two in the following year. I think it was Pete Alexander, maybe the next year or the year after that, was the only one who made it. It's just funny to see, yes, five legendary names, but then the next year, I think Cy Young was one of those guys. But in the following years, it was more like three would make it, and then one year, it was only one.
0: Am I right in thinking that none of them were unanimous?
1: Nobody's ever been unanimous until Rivera.
0: Rivera, Mariano, yeah. Which
1: was just recently. Even Nolan Ryan and Griffey, they were the number one and two highest percentage ever, I believe, Nolan Ryan, Ken Griffey. They had higher ranks than Mays and Aaron and Ruth and Cobb, for that matter. But nobody had it unanimous until Rivera. Which is interesting. Jeter was close, but not even Jeter got unanimous.
0: I hate the Yankees. I love Mariano Rivera. I respected the hell out of them. But I find it fascinating that of all the greats in history, this pitcher that specialized in one very narrow aspect of the game was the first to get a unanimous vote. When all of those luminaries of the game that you've talked about already... Didn't? How does Babe Ruth not? How does Ty Cobb not, for that matter?
1: But some of the greats who got in on the first ballot got 85, 90, which is awesome. But that still means a lot of voters did not vote for them because a lot of voters are babies. I'm not going to vote for him because he can't get it unanimously.
0: (laughs) That is one of the fun aspects of seeing those little groups of writers and their petty arguments. The Baseball Hall of Fame is voted on by sports writers in America, North America. I think there's some Canadian ballot holders now, too. A lot of these men can be very small-minded. They can hold grudges. They can be little barroom czars that just want to espouse their controversial views. And if they want to say that the best baseball player of all time was not Ty Cobb, and I'm going to prove it to you because he's not going to get 100% on the ballot, that's what happens. And it's mind-blowing to me, because if any objective observer looked at these guys, and not just Cobb, but all those greats, how do you not put them in the Hall of Fame, and how do you not do it on the first ballot? And like you said, well, they can't get on the first ballot because they have to know that they aren't God. Are you kidding me?
1: But the writers even now are babies. They've been babies for uh, a long time. They always will be. There's always a few, at least. But they also changed their rankings now. They do it. Roy Halliday would not be a Hall of Famer had they not changed the whole 300 wins thing. He wasn't even close to that. But was he the best for about 10 years or one of the very best pitchers for about 10 years? Yeah, he was. If Kershaw's arm falls off this year or next and ever pitches again, he's a Hall of Famer. Trout also. Trout has played 10 years. They have to have played at least 10 years. Those two guys could get shot after they've played their 10 years, and they both have to be Hall of Famers. But they wouldn't get unanimous votes either.
0: Yeah, which is insane. How many MVP awards or Cy Young awards? Because I think Kershaw has, what, four Cy Youngs?
1: Three for sure. I mean, he was almost four or five. He could have won easily. And Shrout's won three MVPs, could have five MVPs.
0: You've been multiple times voted the best player or best pitcher in Major League Baseball. And that does not make you worthy of a first ballot Hall of Fame entry. And you're right. I don't think they will ultimately get it on the first ballot. Even if they continue playing another 10 years, I don't think they will
1: trout's pretty loved so unless that changes for some reason if he gets kershaw well, is too yeah true he's pretty well liked but trout especially trout's pretty bland it really helps i think that's one reason why jeter got not quite 100 percent, but very close jeter deserved it but jeter was so mercurial So either people loved him or they didn't know anything about him.
0: They didn't know that he was giving gift baskets to the women that he picked up at the bar the night before as a way of saying, thank you for letting me bang you. Have a good day.
1: (laughs) Where a big part of his problem with A-Rod was his own. He was being a baby. I love Jeter. one of my favorite players of the last 20 or so years, but he was a baby. Let's get back to a few more controversies about Cobb before we wrap here. Now, I already talked about the way he treated his wives. That isn't shown a lot, but it's shown enough that we know because he sees it during the Hall of Fame video when he's imagining things that aren't there. So that's bad enough, but we also see him first knock out Stump in Reno, and then he drags Ramona into his room by her hair. Mm -hmm. Now, you talked about paying her to lie about how great a lay he is, and that's one thing. And that was a cool revelation, because she thinks he's going to rape her, let alone what we think. But in the end, it's just, I'm bribing you. But he does drag her by her hair, and he does throw her around. You know what I'm thinking of as we talk about this movie? And I know you don't like it very much. It reminds me a lot of Raging Bull. Yeah. That movie may be viewed as, it is viewed as a classic and has been for a very long time. It was looked at as a classic pretty early on. It was maybe not in 1980 when it came out, but within four or five years, I think people were saying, wow, that was one hell of a movie. And by 10 years, most people were saying it was the best of the decade. And then when we got into the early 2000s and it had been a couple decades, it was, well, that's the greatest modern movie of them all. And it's still really high up there on any film critic list. But the content in both movies is so similar, and nobody went to see these movies. Now, I'm not saying Cobb belongs up to Raging Bull, which I know you don't like very much. I do like Raging Bull, but it's also hard to watch. It's just so beautifully, perfectly made, and so well-acted. Also, better cast. Jones is great in this. The rest of the cast in this movie, because it's pretty much a two-hander, and I don't think Robert was all that great. Aside from Willie. Well, he's good, but he's not in the movie that much. So we're talking pretty much about a two-person cast. Raging Bull is a three- or four-person cast, mostly. It's those two guys, the brothers... And I'm forgetting her name, but God, I'm forgetting her real name too. Anyway, his wife, and then Nicholas Colasantos' character is the mob boss. So that's pretty much four people. They're all great, but I think Robert Wool hurts this movie. I don't think he was well cast. I would say a 7 out of 10 at best. I used to be more like an 8. I think I'm a 7 at this point. What about you?
0: I don't even think I'm that high, to be honest with you. I was thinking more like a 5 out of 10. You're right. It's not an easy movie to watch, partly by design and partly because I think Shelton was a little bit misguided in picking up this stump guy's second biography and turning it into this road movie, two guys watching their relationship develop kind of piece. I think there's a much more interesting way that this movie could have been done in retrospect. And when I saw this movie 15, 20 years ago, when I, whatever it is I first saw it, I didn't see it in the theaters. I certainly did. It was probably about the year 2000 or so when I found it. I enjoyed it a lot more then. I knew less about the game. I knew less about Ty Cobb, the guy, or the player back then. But now I'm thinking, why don't you have a little bit more focus on professional era Ty Cobb? It doesn't have to be like an eight men out style of movie where you're there with him during his heyday. But even if it's a retrospective thing of older Ty Cobb reminiscing about his younger days, there would be a lot more interest in that kind of movie for me. Because a lot of what we've been speculating about is this Ty Cobb's fever dream imaginings and remembrances of what it was like to be him in his heyday. I think you can do that in a way where you're having flashbacks to him in his playing days, get a lot more of the game involved, first of all. But you can also see those things reenacted in the way he remembers them and in some of the remembrances of his contemporaries. I think that might have been a more interesting thing to me. As it was, this thing just dragged...
1: Yes, it's too long. It's not much more than two hours, but it feels like it's a lot longer than that.
0: It felt so much longer.
1: <laughs> Contrast to White Man Can't Jump, which is so entertaining. Ron Shelton, of course, did that, and we've covered that. Bull Durham, which Bev and I covered years ago. Good pace in that movie. And the other movie we covered by Shelton was Tin Cup, which is longer than this. I wouldn't say it really feels longer than this. You could probably have cut down Tin Cup a little bit. Maybe because both, all well, three of those movies, I should say, were entertaining in a comedic way. And this movie yeah. has a few laughs, but it's not entertaining. It's more like Raging Bull, where... The artistry in Raging Bull is so great. That's what makes that movie stand out. There's not really much artistry in this movie. And the guy is a son of a bitch. So you appreciate the performance, but there's not much more there, there.
0: And when you don't have Tommy Lee Jones just going off the rails in this movie, you really feel it drag. That just goes back to what you were saying about Wool's character, right? Fine, but as a focus of the movie, it doesn't hold up. So when you don't have a Don Johnson or Kevin Costner, Rene Russo, and Tin Cup, who are all pretty damn good and entertaining in that, you don't have that in this movie. It felt long. It felt oftentimes uncomfortable and dated. And sequences, like you said, with Ty Cobb dragging the cigar girl waitress into the hotel room, and you're like, okay, is so he going to rape her now. Maybe part of that is trying to show what an asshole this guy is. Maybe part of it is trying to show what it was like and early 1960s Reno culture where it just felt like a bunch of Goombas and gamblers that would have their way with anyone that came across their path. For me, maybe a five out of 10. And most of it is because I love Willie. There are interspersed sequences in this movie that I really enjoyed and Willie's are some of them. And there's moments with Cobb that are really fun and some lines that are really fun, but about 70% of this movie I could just do without it at this point.
1: You know, one reason why I think there was not as much baseball action as we would have liked to see Is because I was reading that Tommy Lee Jones suffered a broken leg. A lot of the scenes where he's not moving around much if he is laying in the bed or whatever else are to cover up that fact. And I guess they would have had to shoot the baseball scenes, I think, after all of that. And maybe they didn't have time in the budget anymore, which was not a very big budget in the first place. I didn't read that was the reason, but that may have been one of the reasons why. So maybe there were more baseball scenes they cut out. That also costs more to do that kind of stuff. So maybe they didn't have a lot of that. Maybe they thought, we've seen baseball movies. I personally, Ron Shelton, have done a baseball movie with a ton of baseball in it in Bull Durham. This will be the anti-baseball, baseball baseball movie. Not anti, but won't rely on the sport that much. But it would have been nice if there was more, considering there's such rough stuff. It's almost glossed over, too. We hear at one point that Judge Kennesaw Landis, who's such a big part of Eight Men Out, which we did last year, was covering up rampant game fixing, including, apparently, according to that newsreel, Ty Cobb. So the guy who kicked out eight other guys who were found not guilty by the grand jury of the United States, he said, nope, you're out of baseball. You cheated. We know you did. But now, apparently, I think it was supposed to have been years later, covers it up.
0: I think you just hit on the head maybe what I was trying to put into words very badly before is that's just it. They touch on so many things in this movie that you feel like, okay, if you expanded on that and gave it room to breathe and sort of built that into a movie, it would have been so interesting. The opening montage, they're talking about what a silly game baseball was in its infancy. You know, all these players that would put on little shows for the crowds when they were stretching and all these goofy antics that were going on, these enormous stadiums full of rambunctious crowds. And at one point they throw out just offhandedly the fact that Ty Cobb went into the stands and beat the crap out of a fan that had no hands.
1: That's a story that I've heard is true. I don't know if it is, but I've heard well, it. Well, apparently
0: is. it's true. The guy lost one hand and most fingers, on the other hand, in a manufacturing accident, apparently. But what they don't say is that this guy was at every game that Ty Cobb played in New York and just... tackled heckled
1: r- him really badly, right? Yeah.
0: At a certain point, he broke, and the other thing that was interesting that I didn't know is apparently this wasn't unusual, that players would go into the stands after fans on a fairly regular basis. But Ty Cobb got banned or suspended indefinitely after that happened, and his teammates went on strike, refusing to play until that got reduced to like 10 days or something. There's obviously a lot of interesting stories to be told about this guy's playing career, because like you said earlier, he was hated by a lot of people. Obviously, also loved to a certain degree, or at least respected to a certain degree, because
1: I heard the media liked him because he didn't pull punches with them. He didn't give them nothing like a jeter would nowadays or battle with them all the time like so many other athletes do who say nothing at all, so damn boring. He was colorful and he was interesting. And of course, he knew, but he was obsessed with baseball. He was brilliant about it. So the writers liked
0: him. You don't have to love the man to love the player. Sometimes there's anti heroes in the game. Barry Bonds is not a bad example of this. He was detested as a person, I think, through at least the latter stages of his playing career.
1: By almost everybody, including his own teammates.
0: But did you not enjoy watching him play? Did you not want to see him hit magnificent home runs? Might
1: be the most talented player to ever play the game. Forget he- the drugs. He might be the most talented player. Trout's certainly on that list now, but Bonds is more talented than even Ruth or Cobb. I can't speak for Mays. Right. He might be on that list, too. He probably is on that list, too. You're talking all around? Bonds is definitely on the short list of one of the greatest players to have ever played the game. And including, I mentioned earlier, War. I think he's second or fifth. Or something oh, He's like super that.
0: high up there. It's almost more interesting to me, at least now, and I'm sure it was true then as well, when you have a guy that is such a great player, but he's also clearly an ass, it adds an element to it because you don't know whether to root for him or root against him oftentimes. I felt that way about Bonds. I knew enough of the man to think, okay, I don't like you. You're not a great man. You're not a great human being. You're an asshole every time we see you portrayed. But damn, you're good it just reinforced to me exactly what you said, that there were so many very interesting little things just sort of dribbled in and they just left by the wayside. No, no, tell me more about that. Please, I beg you. I want to know. Oh, okay, we're going to be on the road with these guys now.
1: He supposedly pistol-whipped a guy to death. That's portrayed in the movie, but I've also heard that that wasn't true. But I could believe it. If he had anything close to the hair, trigger temper that's portrayed in this movie or just said, even if it wasn't as bad as it was shown in this movie, I could see him doing that. And because he was famous and rich, he would get away with it.
0: Maybe one of the more the more interesting pieces of the movie, but the least interesting aspects of Ty Cobb's actual life, he's trying to hurt people when he played. And that might be true. You can't do it anymore because they put in rules to prevent it, but if that means i got to spike somebody in the knee to get him to drop the ball so I can be safe at second base when I steal it, so be it. But the whole sharpening of the spikes, apparently that was made up at a whole cloth to make him sound like more of an ass than he actually was. And it also makes sense. If you spike somebody with steel spikes i'm sure you've experienced this at some point and not even with steel spikes but probably just the hard plastic stuff if you never have actually no i've always
1: avoided that and i've never been spiked no not even by the plastic cleats
0: if you ever catch that in the calf or around the knee or around the ankle they don't have to be sharp if there's any momentum behind them forget about it they linger on it more than any other aspect of cobb's playing career is this whole sharpening of the spikes thing guys there's so many other things and the pistol whipping give me something more interesting out of this movie (laughs) i beg you not more of this stumpy guy. oh god okay here we go stumpy again
1: It's too bad because Ron Shelton is the one at the helm. And I would say it was a success, but I used to love this movie a lot more than I do now, and you don't even like it that much at all. So it's a bit of a surprising disappointment. We've had some disappointments lately. We didn't think Caddyshack was all that good either for whole different reasons because it just isn't that funny. Well, next week, or sorry, in two weeks, we're going to cover, we don't know yet because we haven't really decided. (laughs) We're still going to be quarantined. We don't know that for sure. But by the time we would watch the movie next, we'll still be quarantined without really officially knowing it. So we'll say we might do Basketball, which is on Netflix. He doesn't want to do that. Probably not. We might do Coach Carter, which is on Netflix. But anyway, what we definitely will do is talk about, because it'll be our 50th episode, our five favorites of the movies we've covered so far. So I guess we'll talk about our five favorites of them being movies themselves or five favorite sports movies. I guess we can do both of those things. And we'll pick a movie, probably something that we can burn through in about half an hour and then spend 15 or 20 minutes talking about our favorites of the 50. So a look back at our podcast we've now done in not quite two years.
0: Hard to believe. 50 episodes.
1: So that'll be in two weeks, and we'll probably still be doing it through Zoom. And my iPad is about to die, so i got to wrap this up. <laughs> All right, so we're on Twitter. He is at ScoringUpMovies. I am at MovieFiend51. This podcast can be found on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, under, of course, Top 100 Project. And the website for everything I've ever done with Chris, with Bev, and sometimes by myself is on the website, Top100Project.com.
0: Now doing a southern accent, Ryan. You're the Georgia Peach.
1: Actually, I'll just do this. Take her stressful, Cobbs. I know that you will. Because this man was always stressed. So stressed. Sweet Georgia Brown. I can't do a southern (laughs) accent that well. Sweet, sweet Georgia Brown. Now it's not good. Sweet Georgia Brown. I can always go back to Rocky. Or I could do Batman. Batman doesn't (laughs)
0: care for any of this stuff. I'd kill Ty Cobb. Wait, I don't kill anyone. The only man less able to relax than Ty Cobb, Batman.